0: Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Good morning, Hope Chapel. Welcome back to Hope at Home. For those of you who might be joining with us for the first time this morning, my name is Mike. And I'm one of the teaching pastor elders here at Hook Chapel. On behalf of our church family, on behalf of our uh, leadership, I want to welcome you to our virtual gathering this morning. And church, I want to emphasize that this gathering this morning is virtual, not actual. What we're doing uh, in this time is approximating our gathering together the best that we can, given the circumstances, while at the same time um, being subject to our governing authorities, while preserving our public witness as Christ's church, and while loving our neighbors by maximizing social distancing and laboring in our scattering to flatten the curve of coronavirus. I want to emphasize that this virtual gathering is no substitute for meeting together, which, as I stand here in our empty sanctuary, my heart longs for like never before. I miss all of you. I miss greeting you at the bottom of the stairs. I miss looking out and seeing your faces. I miss being together. And that's God's design for us, to be together. So let's continue to pray for a conclusion to this crisis. Amen? Now, as we begin this time of virtual gathering, I want to lead us in a moment of pastoral prayer. So I'm going to ask, if you would, please bow your heads and hearts with me, and let's go before the throne of grace together. Father in heaven, we approach your throne of grace humbly this morning as your people called Hope Chapel. We ask this morning that your name would be glorified, that your name would be set apart in our hearts um, and in our virtual space is holy. Jesus, we pray that your name would be exalted in our midst, We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done more fully in our lives, in the lives of those of us in this church, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done more fully, not just in our church, but in our community, uh, in our country, and around this world. Lord, this morning we ask, we pray that you would cause your word to go out. And that as it goes out, you would cause your word to accomplish your intended purpose in the hearts and the minds of those who hear and receive your word. Father, this morning, we especially want to lift up to you all the medical workers who are fighting the war against coronavirus on the very front lines. We pray for our doctors and for our nurses. We pray for all medical support staff. We pray for pharmacists. Lord, we pray for first responders, for emergency workers, and Lord, everyone else who is holding the line against this intruder. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would preserve their health. We pray that you would go before them and keep them safe. We pray that you would give them a confidence in you and your goodness, even when things seem bleak or challenging. Lord, I especially want to lift up to you all the churches in our community in the South Bay. Lord, we lift up our church, Hope Chapel, to you. We lift up the church across the street, Journey of Faith. We lift up Kings Harbor Church, Redeemed South Bay, Delray Church, Oceanside Christian Fellowship, Rolling Hills Covenant Church, Calvary Chapel, South Bay, The River Church, Coast Christian Fellowship, The Bridge Church, New City Church, Saddleback South Bay, Journey South Bay, Jesus Center, Torrance, Lord, all the churches, in our community, all the shepherds that you've raised up, all the people that you call your own in the South Bay, Lord, we pray that we would be united in heart and in testimony during this time. Lord, we pray that our public witness together as the network of churches that you've raised up in the South Bay would be compelling to those on the outside. We pray that we would be an ever-present help in time of need, Lord, to those in our community who are hurting, to those who are afflicted, to those who are scared, uncertain, and Lord, those who are fighting this battle on the front lines. Lord, we pray for those who are infected, that according to your mercy, you would heal them. We pray for those who are vulnerable, Lord, that according to your care and according to your grace, you would protect them. Lord, we ask that you would stop this virus. And Lord, we ask finally that you would use this occasion, this situation that we are all living through together, not just as a South Bay community, but as a global community to bring about revival, that you would sovereignly and mightily turn heads and hearts more fully towards you. We pray all these things in the mighty, matchless, majestic name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Church, this morning, I want to begin by reminding us where we concluded last time. Last time, we concluded looking at Romans chapter 12, and we focused specifically and narrowly on one verse. I call our attention to Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where Paul says, "'Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer.'" And last weekend, I called us to embrace this verse as our collective purpose statement during this global crisis, especially when we're separated and not meeting together in person as a church family. Now, in my personal rehearsing of this verse over and over during this last week, I've kept returning to Paul's final exhortation. He says, be constant in prayer. So this morning, we're going to turn our attention to prayer. And I can think of no better place to start when turning our attention to prayer than Jesus' own paradigmatic teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. So this weekend, this morning, we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus and we're going to learn from our Lord's prayer. Please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, and read along with me. Church, hear now the words of the one true as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus begins his instruction on prayer By calling us to pray carefully. In other words, before Jesus teaches us how to pray, he teaches us how not to pray. First, we should not pray like the Pharisees pray. Look with me again at verses 5 through 6. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will will reward you. Now, before I go any further, I want us to take note of Jesus's first four words. He says, and when you pray. He doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. You see, Jesus assumes That his disciples are praying disciples. What is at stake in this teaching then is not if we pray, but how we pray. Because Christ's people are always a praying people. So he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now Jesus doesn't name the Pharisees here, but there can be little doubt that he had them and their counterparts in mind. No other group... Uh, is more subject to being called out by Jesus as negative examples of pretentious spirituality than the dead-hearted Pharisees. And his criticism of hypocritical prayer is that at its heart, it is not about God, but it's about man. It's not God-serving, it's self-serving. You see, our prayers are not to be pretentious. They're not to be offered to impress those around us or to elevate our spiritual standing amongst men. Now, this, of course, is obvious to us, and yet, how many times have we been in a group setting and found ourselves almost instinctively praying to impress? Jesus says, don't pray to draw attention to yourself. The only reward that that kind of praying will bring is the approval of men. God will not reward it. And Jesus continues in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, most people 2,000 years ago who were listening to Jesus give this Sermon on the Mount were poor rural people. They didn't have four-bedroom, three-bathroom houses with a detached garage. Most of these people had single-room homes with maybe a storage closet or a pantry. Jesus basically says, go pray in the closet. Now, we never see Jesus praying in the closet, so why does he instruct uh, his followers to go pray in the closet? Because you can't pray to impress when you pray in the closet. What Jesus is getting at is the heartfelt seeking of communion with God and with God alone. You see, Jesus' disciples aren't people who parade their piety. They don't pose or posture when they pray. Rather, they go into their proverbial closet and they seek God alone. Privately and personally, because it's only God's attention that matters. It's only God's audience that matters. Before we can pray a right prayer, our hearts must assume the right posture. One biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, wrote this about, about prayer prayer is one of life's greatest mysteries. Most people pray at least sometimes. Some people in many different religious traditions pray a great deal. At its lowest, prayer is shouting into a void on the off chance that there may be someone out there listening. At its highest, prayer merges into love as the presence of God becomes so real that we pass beyond words and into a sense of His reality, generosity, delight, and grace. So we pray, church, to an audience of one. But next, we should not pray like the pagans. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus refers to the Gentiles to refer to all the non Jewish people who practice various forms of pa- pagan religion um, in that ancient time. And in the ancient pagan landscape, people generally believed that there was a direct correlation between the length of your prayer and the probability of your prayer being answered favorably by whatever deity you were appealing to. Furthermore, the pantheon of pagan gods and goddesses were thought to be totally and utterly capricious. You could never really know when they were or were not favorably disposed towards you in your prayers. So if you're going to pray to one of them, you better pray for a long time just to be sure. Often these prayers took the form of babbling on and on, rambling on and on. And that's literally the word that Jesus uses here, babbling. Or these prayers could take the form of um, a predefined magical formula or incantation that would be mindlessly recited to compel or maybe to manipulate a deity. But you see, Jesus says that true prayer is nothing like that nonsense. God doesn't hear us because of our many words. Rather, Jesus says, he hears us because he is our father. And a good father is never capricious. A good father is always constant, dependable, trustworthy. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. As we've already seen, prayer that is acceptable to God proceeds from a right heart. But here we see that prayer that is pleasing to God is also offered on the basis of the character of God Himself and how He has chosen to relate to us, His people, through the work of His Son. One contemporary Christian thinker and scholar, Albert Moeller, said this. He said, when we speak to God, we are explicitly revealing who we believe he is, who we believe we are, what his disposition towards us is, and why he has that disposition. As many of you know, I'm the father of two children, Zoe and Zachary. They love to ask me for things, especially snacks and sweets. (laughs) I know everything they need before they ask me for anything. A father always knows best. Jesus says that our heavenly father knows what we need before we even ask him because he is our father. Therefore, we don't need to go on and on and on in our prayers, babbling like the pagans, thinking that we need to somehow compel or manipulate a favorable response. So Jesus begins this passage. He introduces his instruction regarding prayer with two examples of how not to pray. He's now going to turn our attention to how we should pray. Jesus says we should first pray for God's concerns, then we should pray for our concerns. So first, we pray for God's concerns. Again, having given two examples of how not to pray, Jesus now instructs his disciples. He says in verse 9, pray then like this. Now, I want us to recognize that not a single word in this prayer is disposable. Every single word that Jesus uses, and and even ones that he noticeably doesn't use, carry tremendous spiritual significance. Now to start, we live in a culture that has, as its hallmark, a kind of rugged individualism. Uh, In many ways, this is a very good thing. It's a good property of our culture. But there's a sense in which the individualism of our culture has infiltrated our faith. Case in point is prayer. Jesus does not teach us to pray, my Father in heaven, but our Father in heaven. And this is the pattern we see consistent throughout the remainder of the Lord's Prayer. Not once do we read I or my or me. Rather, Jesus teaches us to drop the I and to begin with our. Because when we enter into a relationship with the living God, we enter into a relationship with his people. Now, certainly Jesus is not prohibiting us from approaching God with our pressing personal needs, but he is giving us a disposition of concern in prayer that extends beyond ourselves as we are oriented to God, not primarily as his person, but as his people. And as his people, Jesus teaches us to approach God with a very specific title Our Father in heaven. These three words, when we think about them, when we meditate them on them, they should bring us great comfort, and they should inspire in us great confidence in prayer for at least two reasons. First, they should give us comfort and confidence in prayer because of God's relational position towards us. You see, there is a sense in which God has a fatherly attitude over all of His creation, over all of his creatures. After all, the world and everything in it belongs to him and to him alone. But this is not the way that Jesus is using the word father. Rather, Jesus is referring to the very specific fatherly relationship that God has with his redeemed people. And this relationship is only secured one way. It's secured by the work of Jesus, the one unique son of God. Look what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus as he opens his letter to them and as he he describes the greatness of God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer, we come confidently not because we merit his attention, not because our prayers are impressive, but because in his love he has established this unique relationship with us as his adopted children. And the work that has secured and cemented our standing with him, with him is not our work, but Christ's work. And that work is credited to us simply by faith and by faith alone. Church, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. So, in this present crisis, as we make our appeals to God, we must not be timid. We must not be insecure. We must not be full of doubt because God does not hear us on the basis of our performance or the eloquence of our prayers. He hears us on the basis of Christ's performance. Furthermore, we find Comfort in prayer because our Father is never not our Father. God never rescinds the spirit of adoption that He has gifted to us. So where we find confidence in prayer because of Christ's work, we find comfort in prayer because of God's fatherly relationship to us. He loves us as His own children. Therefore, it follows necessarily that He will hear us and that He will care for us. But second... We should have comfort and confidence in prayer because of God's cosmic position. You see, Jesus says that when we pray to our Father, we pray to our Father who is in heaven. The addition of in heaven tells of God's transcendence. It speaks of God's sovereign power. So Father in heaven means that almighty God, the omnipotent one, the one who dwells in heavenly splendor and power, the one who is majestic over all, the creator and sustainer of all, that one cares deeply about our personal needs. We can have confidence in prayer because nothing on earth escapes God's control in heaven. We can have comfort in prayer because the one who wields all cosmic power the one who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is above all, the one who is supremely magisterial, cares for us, for you, and for me, personally. What is the first request that Jesus directs us to pray to our Father who is in heaven? It is a prayer for God's name. He says, our Father in in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is probably one of the most mysterious statements that Jesus makes in this prayer. And this is largely because our culture has dropped the word hallow from its working vocabulary. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, first we need to know what it is to hallow. Hallow is to set something or someone apart as holy to regard it as holy, even to make it holy. The same word that Jesus uses here that is translated hallow in our English Bibles is used by Peter in his first epistle to a church that was enduring tremendous persecution. In 1 Peter chapter 3.15, we read this. Peter writes, "...but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy," or set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. When we read the Lord's Prayer, many of us mistakenly read, Hallowed be your name, as Jesus kind of giving worship to the Father. But this isn't an offering, it's actually a request. It's a request that the Father make his own name holy. In this world, that the Father defend the holiness and glory of His name in this world, and that the Father would act in such a way that He would visibly demonstrate in and for this world His own holiness, His own glory, and His own majesty. As we wade through this present crisis together, our praying should be a collective plea that God would act in such a way. In the midst of these global circumstances, that the world would see, recognize, acknowledge his holiness, that they would see, that the world would see his glory, that God's magnificence would be evident to the whole world, that he would receive what is properly due him from sinful humanity. But we must also not miss the inevitable and almost ironic consequence of praying this specific request. You see, it's a request that when answered by God means that we will hallow God's name. When we ask God to make his name holy, to promote his own reputation, to set himself apart in this world, we are asking God to use us, his people, as a means of accomplishing that promotion. So to pray that God's name be hallowed means for us to grow in greater desire to personally and individually hallow God's name. So see this, Jesus' very first request of His Father is not a request for Himself. Rather, it is a request of the Father for the Father. That His name would be known and loved and treated as holy. That God would increase the fame of His own name. Just as his name rightly deserves. But next, we pray for God's reign. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, Your kingdom come. Now, this may seem like a simple point, but the kingdom that Jesus is teaching us to ask for is God's kingdom. It's not our kingdom, it's not the kingdom of America, it's not the kingdom of Israel. It's not the global United Nations kingdom, certainly not Satan's kingdom, or any other kingdom that we might imagine. No, it's God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is not primarily characterized by a realm, or by a place, or by a land. It's primarily characterized by a king. So when we pray that God's kingdom would come, church, first and foremost, we are praying for God himself. We are praying for more of him. We are praying that his reign would come nearer and nearer and finally and fully to us here on earth. In fact, we could think of the kingdom that Jesus is referring to simply as God's reign. When we hear kingdom, we should think God's reign. And even though God's reign has not arrived yet fully, it still is the case that we are presently citizens of it. Paul writes to the, to the Colossians, he says that God has delivered us, his people, from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And yet in John chapter 18, Jesus says this, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. But if his kingdom is not of this world. And what exactly are we praying with Jesus when we pray your kingdom come? Well, we find a picture of exactly what we're praying in John's revelation, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. We read this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. see, church, when God's reign comes fully, and finally, when King Jesus returns, when he puts all his enemies fully and finally under his feet, when all pain and suffering and viruses are put away forever, when the dwelling place of God is with man, when God deals decisively and definitively with the destroyers inhabiting this earth, then we will live in perfect peace. We will experience God's unmitigated shalom. We will be with him personally. And we must not miss that the direction of this hope is not earth to heaven, but heaven to earth. Revelation chapter 21, we read this last week. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He is will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven to earth. And all of this that scripture is laying out to you, that I am submitting to you, all of this is our great, big, massive, unparalleled, unrivaled, unequaled, unsurpassable, humongous hope. So central is this hope, this expectation to us as Christians that the Bible concludes with it. Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, the concluding verses, verses 20 and 21, say this. He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The final prayer in the Bible is a prayer for Jesus to come, for God's reign to come for your kingdom come. Everything that's going on around us right now is a cutting reminder that the kingdom of this world is right now, even as I am speaking to you, moment by moment, passing away. But even as creation groans, Even as we experience and endure difficulty, we do not persist as those who have no hope. Instead, in the midst of any circumstance, throughout every circumstance, our prayer is and always will be this. Our hope is and always will be this your kingdom come. Finally, we pray for God's will. Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now here we need to draw a distinction very quickly. We need to distinguish between God's sovereign will and God's revealed will. You see, nothing escapes God's sovereign will, his absolute sovereign reign over all things. Paul refers to God's sovereign will in his opening remarks to the Ephesians. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's his sovereign will. Last week I spoke to you about maintaining perspective in crisis, finding encouragement that despite the threat of this virus, God is still in control. Nothing violates his sovereign will. But Jesus is not so much referring to the Father's sovereign will as he is the Father's revealed will, what God expects of us, his creatures. Now, Paul speaks of God's revealed will when he writes his first letter to the Thessalonians. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, embedded in our prayer that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is the acknowledgement that we forfeit all personal claims of lordship and sovereignty over our lives. You see, this prayer presupposes that God is the authority and that we are not. And if you think about it, this plea is in some sense the culmination of the first two. To pray that God's will be done is to not pray that my will be done. Where have we heard that prayer before? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, this is the ultimate expression of humility before God, the ultimate expression of dependence, the ultimate expression of trust. And that is why we see it expressed by Jesus in his most perilous hour. Now I want us to realize something absolutely imperative uh, regarding the relationship between these first three petitions that Jesus has given to us to offer to God regarding God's concerns, regarding God's priorities, regarding God's plan and program. I want to read to you a quote by um, a prolific New Testament theologian, uh, Dr. D.A. Carson. He writes that these first three petitions, though they focus on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, are nevertheless prayers that He may act in such a way that His people Will hallow his name, submit to his reign, and do his will. It is therefore impossible to pray this prayer in sincerity without humbly committing ourselves to such a course. You see, what these three God concern requests produce in us as Christians is the heavenly mindset of heavenly citizens who still dwell in an earthly kingdom. We are As we are transformed by these prayers, we grow in our ability to trust God in our present circumstances, to look through our present circumstances to the hope of what God has laid for us ahead, which is exactly what Jesus turns his attention to next. So finally, we pray for our concerns. And we begin praying for our concerns by praying for our sustenance. Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, we've invested a considerable amount of time in the previous three requests. I know that. Um, And here is why, church. Here is why. Do you think that the God who is sovereignly bringing history to a close, the God who will cause all nations to rejoice in His glory, the God who will cause every knee to bow and every tongue to, Confess the God who will bind Satan, vanquish evil, and destroy death, the God who is saving sinners through the shed blood of his Son, the God who will pour his wrath out upon sin, the God who will usher in a new heaven, a new earth, a renewed creation, a renewed cosmos. Do you think that the God who is supremely powerful, who is totally sovereign, who holds the universe by his power, who has predestined you and me for adoption as a son or daughter through his Son, do you think that that God? Can meet your basic human needs? Can we trust Him for that? I think so. See, when we pray for God to accomplish His purposes for which He has revealed to us, we are reminded that we pray to a great, big, powerful, sovereign God who most assuredly can and will provide our sustenance. Think about all the concerns that weigh on us. All the needs that we are so easily preoccupied with, all the basic elements of our survival that could be in jeopardy right now in this crisis that we are living through, God will supply all our needs. Jesus does not instruct us to pray to the Father for our daily bread so that the Father will then turn around and deny us. Now, of course, we need to acknowledge that this prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. And of course, daily bread here is a euphemism for all that is necessary for our daily sustenance. But we must also realize, church, that God is always better and greater and more generous than we can imagine. God is faithful to give to us daily bread but he has been super abundantly generous and faithful in giving us the bread of life. You see, in this simple request for sustenance, we read an echo of eternity. Should we not have confidence that the God who has generously given us bread from heaven will also generously and faithfully supply for us bread from earth? So church, be encouraged when you approach God for sustenance, because God is generous and God is faithful. But next, we pray to God for our sins. Jesus says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts. Jesus says, and forgive us our debts. You see, these last two petitions are linked to the first one for daily bread by the word and. And the reason is Jesus is showing his disciples and us that our lives require more than physical sustenance. They also require forgiveness and deliverance. See, Jesus is showing us that we do not live by bread alone. So first, we appeal to God to forgive us our debts. Debts here are a euphemism for for sin, spiritual debts. Now, I want to be clear. The most important provision God has made for us is the provision of forgiveness. Forgiveness from our sins. Release from the debts that we owe to Him. If it were not for His provision of forgiveness, we would yet be condemned by our sins. Under His wrath and destined for judgment. But in His forgiveness, God has preserved our lives. Jesus continues as also as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see the point here is that our experience of forgiveness must result in a change of heart on our part in a willingness to forgive those who have hurt us in far less of a way than we have assaulted God in our sin. A renewed fellowship with God means a renewed fellowship with with creatures with our brothers and sisters. Um, it's not that our forgiveness is the basis of God's forgiveness, but rather, as we experience being forgiven by God, we must function in a greater willingness and desire in heart to forgive others. It is a contradiction in terms for us to approach God for daily bread, but deny our brother or sister forgiveness. You see, in short, there is no place for unforgiveness, which leads to bitterness, which leads to malice. There's no place for unforgiveness in the life of the Christian. We are a forgiving people because we are a forgiven people. Finally, we pray for our souls, verses 13 and 14. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This verse always confused me growing up. I would think, is Jesus insinuating that God can actually lead us into temptation? Well, absolutely not. We have to think about this scripture in the light of the rest of scripture. And the rest of scripture is clear. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle uh, this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, we should distinguish between testing and tempting. God may test us, but God never tempts us. In fact, what Jesus is asking the Father for here um, is that he would lead us away from temptation. Lead us away from temptation. And temptations will often come during times of testing. Temptations will often come during times of tribulation. The question is not if they will come, but when they will come. And we cannot overcome temptations by our own power. We need God's power. We need divine power to overcome temptations when they come upon us. And God has graciously supplied that power through the regeneration of our hearts and through the giving and indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit who takes up residence in us as His people. We are daily dependent upon His power to lead us away from temptation. You see, this prayer is an expression of daily dependence. Jesus has paired forgiveness and deliverance with daily bread, subtly indicating that it's not only bread that we need daily, we also need daily to practice forgiveness. We also need daily to pray for deliverance, that God will lead us away from temptations. You see, these three are equally Fundamental to our physical and to our spiritual health. Church, as we face this present crisis, as we're confined to our homes, we need to be praying for God to lead us away from temptation. For temptation will come to us in many forms. And even though the threat of temptation is real and clear and present, church, We must take heart because our God is present and able to deliver us. Our responsibility is to look to Him and ask. In closing, I want to offer this thought. As we look around us, as everything seems to be spiraling out of control, as our society comes to a full stop. It seems almost like the earth has stopped spinning on its axis. Even as the outlook seems increasingly precarious, we must be a people firmly planted in prayer. We must be a people firmly planted in prayer. And Jesus has taught us to pray carefully, to pray for God's concerns, and finally to pray for our concerns and we can have confidence and comfort when we pray because God's hearing of our prayers is not contingent upon anything we bring to the table, but is totally and exclusively a function of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, that which we receive totally and exclusively by faith and by faith alone. I want to conclude by inviting you where you're sitting with your families or if you're by yourself to just join me in praying this Lord's Prayer together with united hearts as we anticipate taking communion together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us away from temptation. and Deliver us from evil. Amen? On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.